Welcome to the E-Commerce Fuel Podcast, the show dedicated to helping seven-figure cluster owners build incredible businesses and amazing lives. I'm Andrew Guderian, and today on the show, talking about a concept I've wanted to learn more about for quite a, quite a while, and fits pretty well in here in the, uh, in the first week or two of the new year, and that's the idea of a B Corp. Uh, and a B Corp is a business that has decided to incorporate some kind of greater good or social welfare aspect into the core aspect of their business. I think they're actually charged in their bylaws by pursuing that as well as profitability. And I saw the business in Circle.co that Christy Sumer on ECF, uh, one of our private community members, has built up. And it was really impressive. She and her company makes curated minimal clothing for women with the idea of, of creating a more versatile minimal wardrobe. They make it domestically in Canada, which is pretty cool. And they're set up as a B Corp. And so we talk about all the different facets of that. How does a B Corp work? What's the cost involved? What does that actually mean for their business? Is selling to minimalists a problematic business model? <laughs> we talk about that a little bit. We talk about pop-up stores. We talk about, you know, making clothing domestically in Canada, which, you know, is not necessarily something that you would, I guess, would be easy or profitable. Talk about lots of stuff. She's got a very interesting story, business, and model, and we dive into all that. So I hope you enjoy it. Before we dive in, I want to give a big thank you to our two fantastic sponsors who make the show possible. First, the team over at Liquid Web, who has created the best place online if you are running or thinking about running a WooCommerce store. WooCommerce is pretty amazing what you can do with that, but as old quote go, with great power comes great responsibility. And if you're not quite ready for all the responsibility of hosting your own full-fledged open source shopping cart, protecting it from hackers, optimizing database tables... Sounds pretty miserable. You should give them give them a look because they do all that for you in terms of scalability, security, upgrades, updates, architecture. It's pretty cool what they've done. So if you want a great WooCommerce store without the absolute migraine headaches that come with it, check them out at ecommercefuel.com forward slash liquid web. And then secondly, a big, big thank you to the team at Clavio, who's trusted by over 25,000 store owners and I'd say probably the most popular email marketing tool among our private community members. And for really good reason, they provide world-class software that lets you create these incredibly targeted email flows and fire them off automatically when customers do certain things that make them more susceptible. Susceptible? It sounds like a wrong word. It sounds like you're trying to target people and like rip them off. That's not true. When they're more open, that's hot. That sounds so much better. When they're more open to your offers, your customized, personalized offers for upsells, for cross-sells, for re-engagement, cart abandonment, all those kind of things. So uh, check out their very powerful email marketing and automation engine at clavio.com forward slash ECF. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com forward slash ECF. All right, let's go ahead and jump into my conversation today with Christy. Christy, welcome to the show. It's good to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. And you are in your very professional, your new recording studio at your offices, right? Can you tell us about that? <laughs> yes. I'm recording in our washroom because we're in a very open concept industrial studio where the sound vibrates quite a bit with like 15 foot ceilings. So the bathroom is actually the most sound insulated place I can record from. So I do all my interviews in here. Very professional. 
that's awesome. And you've got an external mic. So like, do you just, you just, do you take a table in there or like just a chair or, I mean, this is, I've done a lot of podcasts and this is the first time I've ever had someone repurpose, you know, the washroom for, for a recording studio, which I think is, is awesome. Yeah, so, <laughs> so yeah, we have rugs, we have a couple of rugs we bring in here and then I have a stool. I have a professional mic because I have my own podcast as well. So I just basically hold that when I record interviews and it, it seems to work out pretty well with the sound. So I've been happy with it so far. And I'm sure this is how you were envisioning this interview kicking off, right? So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is the real real of entrepreneurship. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> Bootstrapping at its finest. Exactly. I love it. <laughs> no, I, thanks for coming. It's been awesome having you in the community. And you're I love I love the concept behind encircled, you know, this idea of a curated minimal wardrobe. Talk about that a little bit. Like, I think that I'm guessing reading your bio, your intro, and doing a little bit of research that came from your days in the consulting world and traveling a lot. And, but can you talk a little bit about that? Like, I, I have thought about, you know, I have never, you know, just, just, you know, random ideas that pop into my head in the shower, but like, how cool it would be to do that. Obviously, you do it for women, to do it for guys, have kind of a, you know, some great staple essentials. But how did that, you know, how did that come about for you? And, and talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, it wasn't the way I started. I haven't always been a minimalist. I I was definitely really into fashion in my 20s and would basically shop as a hobby and didn't really think a lot about where the clothing I was buying was made or where it's from or what it's made from. I wasn't, I, I went to school for finance and economics and business. So I didn't really have much insight into the fashion industry in general. I was just kind of shopping because I liked it. I was bored at school. It was something to do. And then, as you mentioned, as I started to get a bit older and I started to travel a lot for my career, I ended up in management consulting where you basically live out of a suitcase and you fly to your client sites weekly. So I started to become a little bit more choosy about what I was bringing with me on trips because I never wanted to check a bag because that would just mean extra time at the airport. And that kind of inspired me to start thinking, you know, I had all these male colleagues in consulting who could just basically bring like, you know, a suit, a couple of shirts, maybe different ties, and they could come up with different looks. But as women, we were always trying to like, you know, bring a different outfit for each day. And that was really inhibiting the ability to be like versatile and travel light. So I started to think about like, what if I could create clothing that literally transformed that could take something that looked like a scarf and turn it into a dress. And then you have two outfits in one and you need to bring less stuff. So that's really like the original genesis was this idea of like traveling light. And then as it started to evolve, and I think just the trends that I was noticing in the industry around minimalism and people becoming more interested in sustainability and ethical consumerism, it really started to, we started to focus on like the wardrobe because if you can really travel with a carry-on only suitcase for two weeks, then I started thinking about like, why do we need so much clothing in our own wardrobes at home? Like, how can we embrace that mentality of traveling carry-on only in our closet at home? Yeah, that's awesome. So do you, do you actually, was that a real example? Do you actually have a scarf that you can also wear as a, as a skirt? Yes, that was my first piece I ever designed. It's called the Chrysalis Cardi. It is, you can wear it eight different ways. So I actually launched the business with that one piece. And I had that piece in like two colors for almost a year and a bit. So it was our most popular piece. It's still very prominent actually in our collection. It's becoming less and less popular as we launch new products. But I mean, that product's been around for almost seven years now, which is crazy. But yeah, that was my first like major inspiration and still probably the most versatile piece that we have in our collection because it does change into eight different pieces. Wow, that's amazing. What other items do you have that do double or triple or quadruple duty in your lineup like that? Do you have any other ones? 
Yeah, we have a whole bunch. So I have a dress that you can wear six different ways. You can change the length of the dress from like a tunic to a top to like a knee length dress. We have a jacket dress. It turns from like a jacket blazer into a dress. We have a top where the sleeves change length. So we have those types of pieces. And then we've also moved more into the idea of like comfortable pieces that you can dress up or dress down. So pieces like our dressy sweatpant and our dressy legging and our dressy sweatshirt are literally designed to be able to be worn to work and weekend and traveling, but they're so comfortable that you'll never want to take them off. So they're kind of a different take on versatility, not actually changing shape or form, but just the versatility and the amount of occasions you can wear it and how you can transition it throughout your wardrobe. So you don't need as many pieces if you can wear a piece more places, essentially. So how many... Maybe maybe two two part question here. Can you stay on the road indefinitely, assuming you can, you know, you have access to, you know, laundry on a weekly basis? Can you pretty much stay on the road indefinitely out of a carry-on? And and in terms of dressing professionally? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I, I'm trying to think of the longest work trip. A lot of my work trips were pretty short. So they're usually like <laughs> anywhere from 24 hours sometimes to, you know, four or five days. But I've traveled with a carry-on myself for like almost 14 days. We worked with a lot of travel bloggers back in the day, and some of them would travel for six months with just a carry-on or small bag. I was so inspired by how little they could pack. So it's definitely changed the way I travel as well now, even more so. I'm even leaner when I travel, but it's definitely possible. I mean, it just takes a lot of organization and planning. So thinking about where you're going and packing pieces, again, that are really easy to dress up, dress down, or change for whatever you need to do, you know, if you're hiking or whatever, or going out for dinner, that kind of end-to-end versatility allows you to be be more with less and really not have to bring as much stuff. That's, I mean, I've traveled for months at a time out of a small backpack, you know, with just, you know, two or three shirts, but that was definitely not in a professional setting. That was a very, uh, very grunge backpacker style, uh, <laughs> you know, look that I had going so that you can pull that off. That's, that's, a, that's a really cool story for the brand. How did you, so management consulting, You've been doing you do that for over a decade, and uh, hooray, fellow finance geek! I love uh, when we get fun, two finance geeks on the podcast. We'll try to spare everyone else geeking out about that too badly. But what? How did you make the jump? I mean, designing clothing, doing a, a clothing line. I'm, I'm guessing you didn't have a whole lot of experience, so that could be wrong. And you're making some pretty sophisticated items that that can do a lot. I mean, I'm guessing clothing in general is it's whole this whole another world. Let alone creating a lot of interesting, unique designs that are complex. How did you, how did that transition go? Did you, did you just dive in and figure it out? Did you hire design consultants? How did you, you get into that world and do it effectively? Yeah. You know what, when I started Encircled, it was 2012, like late 2012, kind of around the time we're recording this. And I was working full-time, more than full-time, I would say, because I traveled so much. I was working probably about 60 to 80 hours a week with my day job. And I really had this idea and I wanted to make it happen. So I just started to leverage all the resources I could figure out. So we had an organization in Toronto called the Toronto Fashion Incubator where I'm based. And I went to them and I said, listen, I'm looking for somebody who can help me make a garment. I don't even know how to do that. And they were very kind enough to like direct me to some resources. They had some like resumes on file and they're like, you're going to need a technical designer. And I'm like, okay, sure. Why not? So I went through the resumes and I just randomly called this one person. And she said, you know, I don't do this anymore, but I have this friend who does it, who I called. And she became my kind of freelance technical designer for probably like she did about six or seven of my pieces. So I just worked with her and I would tell her basically, I took a sketching class. So I took a few like bits and parts and pieces of like 
fashion classes just on the weekends and stuff like that. So I took a illustration class because I wanted to understand how to properly like illustrate design. Otherwise, I felt like I wouldn't be able to communicate the vision to the designer. I took a basic sewing class because I wanted to understand a little bit more about construction. And I took like a couple of like just general like fashion, like merchandising classes that I found at a local college. And I just bought this book that I had this entrepreneur sewn guide to product manufacturing, probably the most boring book I've ever read. But when it's boring, you know, there's like really good value in there. And it literally walks through end to end the process of making a garment, like what a marker is, what a pattern is, all these pieces that I had no idea, you know, what went into it. I had some background in retail because I was doing retail management consulting, but I wasn't designing products. I was talking more about strategy and process improvements. So it was definitely a very different shift. So hiring freelancers was really critical to getting my first product out there and just a lot of legwork, I would say. And a lot of people who were very kind to me and didn't like laugh in my face when I came to them with garments and said, I want to make this. And they're like, how many pieces do you want to make? And I'm like, I think like a hundred. They're like, well, we do a thousand or something like that. You know, so it was a lot of test and a learn and a lot of just like grit and perseverance and kind of following up and, you know, getting rejected by manufacturers and trying to find a new one. Like it just took a lot of grit, I would say in the first, for sure, the first year. And then subsequently the years after that, just because we make everything in Toronto, Canada as well. So just figuring out that whole supply chain is a full-time job in itself as well. Yeah. And you said you were, you were starting in circles alongside, like while you were working managing consulting, you were doing both at the same time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did both at the same time. So I would take, you know, when I was home on weekends, I would pretty much put the pedal to the metal and just do all of my customer service, do all my social media planning, all that kind of stuff. And I learned to work very efficiently. And then I would take vacation time and go to like fabric shows <laughs> and stuff like that. So I really tried to make it work as much as possible while being super respectful to my employer and being fully present when I was working full time, which I think is really important as well. Because I always want to leave like really good relationships in my working environment as well. I knew I was eventually going to leave consulting at some point, but I wanted to make sure that I was giving my all to my full-time job because it was paying my income at that time as well. Yeah. I, I'm always curious about like what what drives entrepreneurs. And and I think about myself, when I started the business, I had a very strong drive to not have to go back to the finance background that I had left. Not because I it was great for a couple of years, but it was it was brutal. You know, for you, what was it that was really driving? Was it really just the idea of wanting to create the clothesline? Were you so passionate about that? Or was it how much of it was wanting to maybe prove yourself to other people, which I think is a is a is a is a motive that a lot of entrepreneurs don't really, myself included, necessarily always acknowledge. How much of it was just wanting to do your own thing? Do you do you know what it was? Because that's to be able to do that, management consulting and start a business is a pretty spectacular feat. Yeah, you know, that's a great question. Nobody's ever actually asked me that. It's a very reflective question for sure. And when I was listening to you ask that question, I was thinking immediately, why did I do this? You know, what, what was going through my head? You know, I had a great career. I was making lots of money. I was very, very successful. I was very happy. I had everything I needed and more. And to disrupt that all was pretty crazy. And I wasn't like right out of school either as well. Like I'd been in my career a while. So a lot of it came from a passion, I think. And some of it came from just inherently wanting to be challenged. So I think one of my biggest 
things with like working in different jobs and stuff like that. Like I would leave jobs every two to three years because I would kind of figure it out and get bored. And then I'd try to enact change. I'd make some change and then I'd be like, okay, I'm done here. And so when I got into consulting, it was actually really good because you're doing that more frequently. You're going into a business and trying to fix it, et cetera, et cetera. The problem with consulting is the lifestyle really eats at you because you're never home and you're working so much. And I started to become more and more interested in the idea of aligning my values with the work that I was doing as well. And as I grew a bit older, I started to, you know, travel more and I started to see different parts of the world where, you know, the environment was definitely suffering from human impact. And I started to become very curious about consumption and consumerism and stuff like that. So that started to drive, I think, a lot of this business because I often say to like new entrepreneurs, like, if you're not passionate about what you're doing, you're not going to get very far because it's not easy. You have to really love what you do. So that passion to make a difference in the world, I think really was like the underlying thing that drove me, but also just the challenge of building something from the ground up, I think fuels me and keeps me going as well. So Christy, you mentioned wanting to do something that aligned with kind of your values and we've already talked about, you know, uh, less consumerism, less stuff, having, you know, on the worship side, especially which kind of ties into the whole concept of a B Corp, which I have always found interesting. I, I know you're set up and encircled as a B Corp. And the, the way I've always understand it is that it's a business that's incorporated that has a purpose and a fiduciary duty to be able to do something for the broader world in addition to just creating shareholder, shareholder value. Or that like you know profitability is not the only concern and the only metric by which the business makes decisions. Is that, and I'm sure that's a... a that's probably a you know very very limited, possibly totally incorrect <laughs> definition. So educate myself and everyone listening. What what is a B Corp? How does it work? What does it mean for like you know, if someone wants to start one and why did you do it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not too far off. I mean, essentially, a certified B Corp is a company that has committed to use business as a force for good in the world. Some B Corps that people may have heard of, like Patagonia, Eileen Fisher, Warby Parker is a notorious one, Ben and Jerry's. All of these B Corps have gone through a really rigorous third-party certification process that basically measures each company on five pillars as to how we operate. So our workers, our environment, our community, our customers, and our governance. And they basically go through and audit everything. They want to know who you're buying from, like where they're located. They want to know how you pay your employees, what kind of benefits, like down to materials you're using, certifications. And essentially, to me, one of the reasons why we did it was because in our industry in sustainable fashion, there's a lot of people who come, we're coming into the market and just saying they're ethical and sustainable. And to me, it's a mark of a reassurance to a consumer that this has been verified, that we have been validated and certified to be that because anybody can kind of say that. It's not really a term that has a lot of like guardrails around it. So, For us, it was really important to do that process to give consumers confidence in our brand. Also, I think the second part of that was it gave us access to a database of best practices. So all of these companies and even going through the assessment and auditing process, you start to see areas of your own business where you can be better. So we started to think about like, okay, what else could we do to become more sustainable as a business? So like a a really easy green example is like we implemented an office composting system and we started to green power our office. So all of our energy 
powers our office is wind power and offset. So just like all these little bits and pieces, and it got me thinking about as a culture and as a company, what kind of company do I want to build? And I was able to leverage these practices off of these other brands, which was pretty neat as well. So there's a lot of benefits beyond just having that certification and logo. But for me, it just seemed like the next evolution of Encircled to have us stand out as being more professional and really serious in this industry and an industry leader. And so B Corp, is there one company that kind of they own the brand B Corp and they're the one company that certifies people? Or is it more of a broader designation and there's lots of different companies? There's kind of a broader designation or framework that's generally accepted and you can get certified by a lot of different companies. No, it's one company. I think it's called B Lab that owns it and they do all of the certifications. So you have to go through them to get certified. And if people want to go, they can check out their website on the B Corp website and you can see each brand that's been certified report card. So they have a scorecard up there where they'll show the company score and then what the median score is for the industry and stuff like that. So when we did it, our overall score was a 91, which probably doesn't mean much to people, but it's pretty decent considering how small we are. And we were very strong, actually, across all the metrics because we we run a very, what I think is a very balanced business. Like we're really into sustainability, but the ethics of where our garments are made is really important as well, as well as our impact on the greater community and our employees. But you'll see some brands that come in, they might be a bit higher on environment because sustainability is something they're really, really into and maybe workers is a little bit lower, but it's a really fascinating website to go visit. If people are interested in it, probably link to it in the show notes. So do people do people notice like how many obviously it's not the only reason you do that but it's part of it is is so you, your consumers or your customers know that you're running a business a certain way and you're you're uh, being intentional about the way you produce things in a certain way what is it something that, that a lot of your consumers actually notice or is it more of just something you're doing because it's it's baked into the philosophy of how you want to run your business and it's important to you It's a little bit of both so I would say Inherently, it's built into everything we do anyway. So oftentimes people will ask how we're sustainable. And I have to say, like, it's not like how it's like we are like that's at our fundamental foundation as a business. And it, it definitely touches all areas of the business from like, like I talked about, like, to the products we use in the office, like to the toilet paper we buy, to the paper we use, all that stuff, everything is considered. Like we have reusable towels in our office, like, and it's all about the details. And then it goes as far up to our fabrics and our carbon footprint and, you know, where we're making stuff. So for us, it's going to happen anyways. I think the certification is a seal of approval and qualification. And it puts us in a group of companies that, really, I think in a lot of ways helps our profile, like being alongside like a Patagonia or an Eileen Fisher, like that's pretty, that's pretty awesome. So for us, there's a lot of value to just even having that symbol and seal on our website or at our pop-up shops and on our marketing materials as well. Yeah. And what roughly, what's the cost to get certified? Because it sounds like, I mean, they got to do a fairly deep dive on a lot of facets of your business. Is, is this, I'm guessing this is not a couple thousand dollars. What's the investment to have this done? And then to have, that you have to do on an ongoing basis too? I think the biggest investment is probably having somebody project management the actual assessment because they'll do an assessment initially and then they'll do a deep dive and they'll pull out little things they want you to delve more into in spreadsheets you need to submit and documents and stuff like that. And that whole human cost of preparing all those documents and stuff is pretty high. Quite honestly, I had somebody on my team managing that project almost full full time for a couple of months. 
The actual certification, I think it depends on your level of revenue, but I know we just renewed at some point. It was about $1,000 for two years, I think, or something like that. So it's not it's not crazy, but again, it, it scales up, I think, depending on what your annual revenue is. So I'm sure it's much, much different for like a Patagonia. It's probably more like... I don't know, $10,000 or $50,000. I'm not really sure, but it's, it's pretty accessible. They want to make it accessible for smaller and startup brands because they want more brands in their community doing great things for the planet and the people on this planet. Yeah. Okay. That's way more reasonable than I thought. I would have guessed it would have been, you know, low five figures, but that's, you know, that's not too bad. Almost all, I believe almost all of your sales come from your own site, which is impressive. What, what are your thoughts on? you know, on Amazon, I'm sure. Do you sell on the platform? Are you thinking about expanding onto it? Are you very intentionally staying on your your own site? What's kind of what's the philosophy that you're you're taking with your own site versus other other channels right now? Because you've done a great sort of job building something on I mean that's the thing that most people struggle with is is building out that that primary channel they own on their own dot com or dot co for or dot CA for you. But uh, yeah, what's your what's your thought process there? Yeah, Amazon is kind of a funny one for us. We're not on the platform right now, and we don't have any plans to be on it in the near future. The thing with Amazon is obviously it's everywhere. They've got fulfillment even and all that stuff. But for us, I think our focus has really always been on building and driving our own site. We didn't start with like an Etsy store or anything like that. We started with a standalone site because I wanted to create a brand experience that went along with our product and really created a customer experience that was engaging and interesting and told our story. And I think some of that's lost. A lot of that's lost on Amazon, quite frankly. And then the other thing is we run pretty small batch as well. So our manufacturing philosophies don't necessarily align with Amazon's either in terms of the fulfillment strategy. We self-warehouse everything here. And because we're making stuff locally as well in Toronto, depending on the product, sometimes we can turn product in like two weeks if we have the fabric in stock. So we're not necessarily producing 10,000 units at once. We might be doing a couple hundred pieces and then flipping it every couple of weeks. It really, so we're trying to minimize our inventory, whereas Amazon loves it if you have like a lot of inventory in their warehouse at once. So it's something that, For me, it just doesn't fit right now. I'm not going to say never, but for us and our business model, we've just found a lot more success from managing it all ourselves. Yeah. And you also do pop-up stores. Those have always sounded to me as someone who's never dealt with them or, or run them. They've always sounded like a lot of work <laughs> relative to the, you know, the, the level of exposure and revenue you can get. But I'm guessing is the reason that you do well, is the reason that you do them because you get a it's just it's just branding, it's visibility in public spaces, you get to interact with people one-on-one in a way you don't online. Like why do you do them and wh- how valuable what what are the what are the facets that make them valuable that uh, cause you to keep doing them? Yeah, you share a very similar viewpoint as me. So when I started, <laughs> I looked at it very financially, of course. So everything's ROI based. So I would say like, oh, we did this, it cost this, it didn't make sense. Like that was my approach, you know, it, starting out sometimes two pop-up shops and events can be hit or miss. So I do an event, I do maybe like one sale and I'd be like, never doing this again. That was not worth it. But what I wasn't looking at was kind of that intangible, what you talked about, brand awareness that you're getting from some of these events. So we've literally had customers come back to us from events in 
Like I had one the other day in our studio who shopped at an event three years ago and had a card I wrote notes on and spent like $1,200 with us in the studio that day shopping. So you never know who's going to see your brand and fall in love with it. So it is part customer acquisition, but it's just a little bit hard to track, even if you're capturing emails, even if you're getting them to follow you on social. Um, but for us being in the clothing industry, and I think what's something important to consider for anybody else who's listening to this is that fit is still like a big thing in the clothing industry and finding the perfect fit online because there is no standard fit in the fashion industry can be challenging. So pop-up shops can be a great way to lower your return rate, increase your average order value. We generally find when people shop with us in person, they spend probably $100 more on average with us and build customer connections. So we've started to create our own events where not only are people able to shop, but we'll bring in like a speaker or we'll bring in other sustainable or ethical brands in a marketplace and just host them for free. We're really trying to focus on brilliant experiences and community. And of course, we still do pop-up shops where, you know, it doesn't, the ROI isn't necessarily there, but I do know that just having our brand in some of these places, again, it builds that credibility and awareness about it, which will pay off eventually as well. Yeah. And, and I want to dive in a little bit into your manufacturing. You make everything in Toronto. And as looking at your where it's made in Canada clothing page, uh, we'll link up to that in the show notes. And so for your supply chain, you've got your 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 shop. Is your retail shop, because you have you kind of keep, I can't, can't remember the word you use, but people can come in and visit you and shop you know, in uh, some kind of brick and mortar shop. Is that the same as where your offices are and where your warehouse is all in that one spot? Yeah. So we're, we're very lucky to be in a really nice building. It's like an industrial kind of loft building. So we've got the space set up with a retail space in the front of the studio. And then our warehousing is kind of in the back. And then we have like all of our, we have some production capability in there as well. So it's all kind of jammed into one space, but we've done a lot of efforts to be able to make it accessible for people to book appointments online. And that channel has become actually a pretty big growth channel. It's about 5% of our revenue now, but it's growing double digits year over year. More and more people want to come shop with us in person, which is pretty cool. But yeah, it's definitely a different experience. We don't have any standalone bricks and mortar and it's not street level. It's on the second floor, but we have like signs and stuff like that. We try and promote it as much as possible on our website as well. Because sometimes people just prefer that experience. And the other thing I'd say about it too is like our fabrics are a key differentiator for us. So the ability to feel that fabric in person sometimes will be that deciding factor for a customer and will help communicate the quality to them. So having those in real life experiences is critical at that standpoint. And once somebody tries something on and they feel the fabric, get the fit and and they fall in love, then you have like an instant customer for life. So we're really blessed to have a really high repeat rate for customers. And I think part of that is from all the events that we've done in our local area as well. A little tongue in cheek here, but is there is there anything problematic with having a business model that is built on selling to minimalists who by default, you know, don't end up needing or wanting to buy a lot of things, you know, and, and I'm guessing, and I, again, half tongue in cheek, but have you thought about that? And I mean, part of it is good because I know that's a huge core value for you. But at the same time, you know, that's also, it's, uh, is that, is that, is that more of a funny thing? And people actually do end up needing to buy stuff that gets worn out or is that actually been a problem in the business? This thing hasn't been a problem. It seems like things are going pretty well for you. It depends on who you talk to, right? So like we definitely have different customer segments like any brand. So we have hardcore minimalist zero waste people who 
you know, their intent is to buy one shirt and wear it for like the rest of their life or whatnot. (laughs) Buried in it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Most of our customers, I would say that value resonates with them because that's like their inspiration. Like they want to have a more streamlined closet, but that's not their reality today. Most of our customers are in the cluttered closet stage and they're really seeking most interesting, what we've done over the last couple of months is we did some customer research, actually, because we wanted to delve more into that to understand who our customers were and why they were coming to us. And one of the top reasons is the comfort of our clothing. And then the second one was the quality. So ethics and sustainability actually weren't in the top three. It was the style. So people, they love our values because I think the values make them feel better about investing with us because our clothing is a bit more expensive than, you know, fast fashion, but they stay for the values, but they're coming for the comfort and quality. They're not these like the be more with less, which is our tagline is I think very aspirational, but it's definitely not the way most of our customers behave in general. Interesting. Kind of circling back to the making your stuff in Toronto. So you've got some production capabilities at your primary location, but then you also use a, uh, a number of contract factories as well that are right in Toronto. Am I? Am I? Is that is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Currently, we have five active subcontractors we work with. The closest one being a seven-minute drive away, and the farthest being probably about thirty minutes in good traffic. So. We're also knitting about half, more than half our fabric now in Toronto as well and dyeing it locally. So we've tried to build our supply chain hyper-local, not only for the sustainability impact of being able to not lower your carbon footprint, but also the quality of the clothing and the quality of the makers here. Like the factories are excellent who we work with. We can see them almost every single week, which is such a different business model than overseas. And they're a lot more flexible in terms of like minimums and stuff like that. I don't have to take 10,000 pieces. I have a factory in downtown Toronto that can do happily 50 pieces for me. So if I need 50 medium black dressy sweatpants, I can get those turned around in like a couple of weeks and we can fill the gap on our website where the inventory sold through. So that's a really big pro that a lot of people don't think about um, when they're thinking about onshore because it is way more expensive, but having no inventory to sell is also very expensive. And also selling poor quality product is very expensive because you're going to get a lot of returns. You're not going to get a lot of repeat customers. So there's a lot of like intangible benefits, I think, to doing it here. But our, our factories are really important to us and we all make sure that they align with our values. They all sign ethical supplier checklists in addition to being obviously beholden to the laws of the province of Ontario and labor regulations and all that kind of stuff. But that's kind of how we've set up our business and kind of how we envision it scaling because we've got enough room to scale now for the next, I would say, two to three years here for sure and beyond. I'm looking at the dressy sweatshirt on your site right now. I know this is for women, but it looks super comfy. I'm tempted to buy it. And it's priced at 154, you know, which is for anything, you know, with the sweatshirt name and even though it looks amazingly high quality is on, you know, definitely on the, the higher side of the price side. So I guess a, a couple of questions diving into that price and quality and how you how you convince people to buy a premium product like that. That 154 made in Toronto, what would that cost if you manufactured at ballpark overseas? Do you have an idea? I'm not 100% sure. Probably probably about a quarter of that, I would guess. Maybe even less. 
The fabric cost is pretty high in that product because we're using, for the most part, a merino wool bamboo French terry, which is a really expensive fabric and very high quality. So usually the fabric cost in that product is about half the cost, I think. And then the rest of the cut make trim. It's actually a more reasonable product to produce because it's fairly straightforward from a construction standpoint. It's just the fabric in there is quite, quite high end. But yeah, I would say on average, the cost to produce overseas is typically, and again, it depends on where you're having it made, but it's usually about five times less, I would say. But I have made, I have met somebody who I know he makes t-shirts in China. And when he talked about his costs out of Marina wool, I was actually pretty surprised at how expensive it was for him to make them there. I think Canada is becoming a lot more competitive because of the fact that we can do those lower runs and stuff like that. And, and the turn times are so quick, whereas like sometimes you're waiting for four to six months for inventory to come overseas. So there's those benefits that make it worth it. But yeah, definitely is probably about 25% of the cost to sew. Yeah. So, so how do you, is a big part of that, I'm guessing, is if you could create something that's of similar and, I, I, you know, maybe not quite as good, but but cl- approaching the quality for 25% and you've got competitors out in the field doing that. And you also mentioned that sustainability is not one of the main things driving. It's probably something they, they definitely appreciate, but probably not the main thing driving them to to buy from you. How do you, how are you able to compete on uh, and, and present and be able to, you know, be able to sell that brand and get people to buy at that level when some of the benefits aren't necessarily ones that they see on the surface. Yeah. Cause it's a super high quality product, but, but is it, how do you think you've been able to do so well doing that when you're producing, you have a very expensive supply chain locally and for good reason, but it's, it's still, you got to be in the market. Yeah. I mean, it always comes back to who you're comparing yourself to, right? So like if I compare myself, this brand to, you know, Zara or H&M, we look very, very expensive, but I compare it to Lululemon, who's fairly price competitive, but makes everything overseas and uses a ton of synthetic fabrics. Then we look a little bit more cost competitive. So it always kind of depends on what set you're putting yourself in. One of the biggest ways I think that we try and differentiate ourselves is through the content that we create. So you've been on our website and you'll see that like we're really passionate about creating content on not only on like our our brand and the values and stuff like that, but on how people can wear the products that we're buying. Because our our goal is to get people to actually wear their closets and wear their clothing. We don't want somebody to buy a sweatshirt from us and just have it hanging in their closet. We're going to feed them with tons and tons of ways that they can style this every single week. And through wearing that piece that often, people inherently feel like they're getting so much value out of it because they are. Like imagine buying a formal dress for like $300 and wearing it once and then buying, you know, a jacket, a blazer for $300 and wearing it every day for the next three years. Like the cost per wear is so much lower. So we're trying to like do something very difficult that my marketing professor in my MBA school would never recommend. We're trying to change consumer behavior. We're trying to get people to think differently about their closet and how they value their clothing because the fashion industry, quite frankly, has taught customers that buying cheap and fast fashion is the way to go. But there's a huge human and environmental detriment to doing that. And people are waking up to that. So I think we're on the right side of that, but we were definitely very early to the party in that thinking. So it's now starting to drive a lot of our sales, but inherently we're going to keep doing what we're doing and producing sustainably and ethically because it matters to us as a brand. And 
a long time ago when I first started one of the drag, we have a show up here kind of similar to Shark Tank called Dragon's Den. And I ran into one of the Dragon's Den's associates at this like networking event. And I told him about my business and he was like, wow. He's like, that sounds like a really cool idea, but you could make it in like, you know, Vietnam for like a dollar and then mark it up. And and I'm like, I don't want to do that. (laughs) Like, I don't want to do that. That's not the business model I want to have. Like, so yes, maybe I could be riding on a yacht right now in the Mediterranean Sea if I had done that. But like, that's not the way I want to live my life. Again, it comes back to like the values I want to create and the jobs. And I want to feel good about the brand that I'm creating at the end of the day rightly or wrongly, that's something that's really important to me. And I think in the end, it will pay off. It's just not going to be, you know, that overnight success that you see with some brands who come in with cheap products that are really trendy. We're going for longevity and truly trying to build a brand. It's such a cool story. And and before we get into kind of a, a wrap-up lightning round here, I think if you've been listening, uh, probably pretty obvious you're, you know, a, a perfect customer for you. Someone who get a lot of value from your stuff as someone who wants high quality clothing that's extremely versatile, you know, is a woman. Anyone else that should be checking out Encircled? Encircled.co or Encircled.ca? Yeah, I mean, we love helping women travel light. We have one men's t-shirt right now that's made in Toronto. So all the guys listening can check that out. It's a beautiful bamboo cotton t-shirt. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of menswear. But yeah, if you're passionate about learning more about capsule wardrobes, whether you're a man or woman, it doesn't matter. We've got a lot of content on that as well. So we're happy to help teach people how they can do more with less in their closet. Even if they don't want to shop from us, we got a lot of great resources on our website for that as well. Is it the men's nomadic V-neck? Is this the, is this the one? Very nice. Yeah. This looks, yeah. Uh, this looks good. <laughs> we'll link up to this in the show notes. <laughs> so, well, great. Will you up for a quick lightning round before we uh, kind of put a bow on this? Sure. I, did, I, didn't, I didn't prep you with this one. I'm going to kind of spring this on you, but who is your favorite minimalist? <laughs> I would have to say Candace Tay. She's a blogger that we work with. She's amazing and she's got so many creative outfit ideas. She actually posted one of our jumpsuits and I didn't even know it was our jumpsuit because she styled it so innovatively that I didn't even think it was ours. So I'm going to say her. Nice. Uh, favorite piece of e-commerce tech that you use? Asana, which is not technically e-commerce, but it drives all of our project management, which drives all of our marketing and e-commerce. So, no, totally acceptable answer. Uh, least favorite piece of e-commerce or business tech? Inventory management software. <laughs> <Stitch>. <laughs> do you want to say what you're using right now? We're using Stitch Labs right now, and it's a little challenging. That's one thing that people don't talk about a lot is like, the challenges of inventory management as you scale and getting the numbers right and doing counts and finding one-off pieces or things that didn't process properly. So that piece of software is really critical, but if it's not working, it can definitely have a major impact on your business. And are you moving to something else that you, are you still looking or do you have something you're moving to? Yeah, we'd like to change in the new year. We are we are migrating because they're decommissioning part of their software. So we're changing to their newer version. And then in the new year, we're probably going to be looking for another alternative. So. Yeah, you're going to get flooded with uh, proposals from, uh, <laughs> from, LinkedIn, yeah. from, from, from ERP people trying to sell you on this. I won't ask you for your phone number or email here. What's the most effective marketing strategy that you've seen in the last six months for your brand? Email marketing, hands down. We transitioned from Cl- uh, MailChimp to Clavio in mid, mid-year when the connection with Shopify broke. And although that transition was very wonky, we've seen a lot of success and 
in switching to that platform. So I'm a huge Clavio fan now. I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. Nice. What was it the deliverability that helped? Was it you just built out on more automated flows or what was it that, that made the difference? I think the segmentation, it's very powerful in there and the data that they have and just being able to deliver the right content to the right people. And they even have the ability to customize that content within the email, which is just incredible. So there's a lot more flexibility and it's definitely designed a lot more for e-commerce marketing. And email is something that we're super passionate about and we've been really into from the beginning. So Clavio just aligns so well with the ability to not only create like product linked newsletters, but a lot of content driven newsletters as well. And the data and measurement analytics are just second to none. Hashtag non-sponsored. This is totally organic. (laughs) Favorite item you sell on the website? Definitely our dressy sweatpants. Those are my favorite. I have worn them twice this week already and it's only Tuesday. (laughs) Really? Let's pull these up here. Dressy sweatpants. They're our best-selling item by far. Oh, nice. We will link up to these as well uh, in the show notes. So if you want to grab some of those for yourself or someone you love. What's the last thing you apologized for that you're willing to share? I had to think about this one. I was late for lunch and not even just like five minutes late, but 25 minutes late. So (laughs) a common entrepreneur thing that I think a lot of people could relate to. We're just like, one more minute. I'm just going to work on this for one more minute. And then you look at the the Waze app and it's like going to take you 45 minutes to get there. So it's a common problem. I've never, I was never late before I was an entrepreneur and now I'm late all the time. What's one of your life goals that's at least a decade plus in the future? You don't think you can hit it for another decade? Probably just start my own investment fund focusing on female-founded businesses. Very cool. And then finally, what's the number one quality you look for in people you voluntarily spend time with, become friends with at this stage in your life? Definitely thoughtfulness. It's something I look for not only in friends, but in people we hire on our team. I think somebody, the ability to like think of somebody else's feelings and empathize, I think is really important and definitely an underrated characteristic in people in the world. Christy, this is, uh, this has been super fun. Thanks for, uh, let's kind of dive in and hear about the business, hear about the story, such a cool brand that you have. I know I mentioned it earlier, but I think the concept's amazing and you've done an incredible job executing it. Yeah. And thanks for being a part of the community. You've been fantastic in there. I mean, you kicked it off pretty Hard to beat. You came up with like just bomber intro that just blew up. Uh, people love to read. And it's been phenomenal having you in the community. And, and uh, I appreciate everything you add in there. So thanks for doing the show. And thanks for being a part of the forum. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be in the forum. And I hope to contribute a little bit more over the holiday time as we gear up with Black Friday and all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, I'm sure you'll have tons of time during the holidays to be able to dive in there and add, exactly. you know, do all sorts of stuff. <laughs> so, well, cool. And if you're listening again, encircled.co, that's E-N-C-I-R-C-L-E-D.co if you're in the U.S. or .ca if you're in Canada. Christy, thanks so much. Thank you. One thing I forgot to mention, Christy also has a great podcast called Brave and Boss, dedicated to the purpose driven founder. covers entrepreneurship, growing a business, all sorts of great stuff. You can learn more about it and give it a listen at braveandboss.com or find it on iTunes or Stitcher. That's going to do it for this week, but a few important things to know about, especially if you're a store owner before you go. First, if you're looking to hire for your e-commerce business, make sure to check out the e-commerce fuel job boards. We'll get your job in front of thousands of qualified job seekers to find you the perfect candidate. And if you're looking for work, 
You should check out the dozens of hand-picked opportunities along with lots of other roles that pop up every week at ecommercefuel.com forward slash jobs. And if you're an established store owner, you absolutely should be a member of our private community for seven-figure plus store owners. You get access to a discussion forum with over a thousand vetted, experienced e-commerce entrepreneurs, invitations to our in-person member-only events, and access to our private review directory with over 5,000 software and service provider reviews. That sounds interesting. You can learn more and apply for membership at ecommercefuel.com forward slash form. That's F-O-R-U-M. And a big, big thank you to the two sponsors who make this show possible. First, to Clavio, who makes email marketing automation incredibly easy and powerful. If you're not using them for your store, you're leaving money on the table. You can get started for free at ecommercefuel.com forward slash Clavio. And then secondly, to Liquid Web, the absolute best place to host your WooCommerce store anywhere online. If you want a rock solid store that can scale with you when you need it to, check them out at ecommercefuel.com forward slash Liquid Web. Thanks so much for listening and looking forward to seeing you again next Friday. This is the ASY Radio Network Live from New York.